Well, good morning again, and welcome to, again to this gathering of Old Oak Bible Church. Uh, we welcome to those who are joining us via Facebook Live, who are attentive enough to join right when we started. Um, but as we get started in our study of 1 Corinthians, I'm going to ask you another question, as I started last week with the question two. Do you have a season of your life that you're not especially fond to remember? A season, we'll say, when you tried a little too hard to fit in, and or either not to fit in, or we'll say that too, a season you're not particularly fond to remember for that reason. Well, we won't start off really heavy hitting this morning. We'll start off a little bit lighter. Maybe we could think about fashion trends and our past in relation to fashion trends. We've all seen, I don't know about you, I've seen pictures of myself in previous seasons of life, and I say, my goodness, why did I ever wear that? <laughs> now, looking at this room and the range of ages and generations in this room, I think we have a variety of potential fashion faux pas in this room. We probably, as from my vantage point here, I bet we have some knee-high boot, bell-bottom wearing tie-dye people here. Others may have been the leg warmer types, wearing acid-washed jeans, sweaters tied around your shoulders. Others still, perhaps, may have went through the grunge phase of the late 80s and early 90s, wearing oversized flannel shirts and parachute pants. Others still may have fallen prey to frosted-tipped hair, cargo shorts, and Abercrombie and Fitch. Now, for those of us who have went through an unfortunate fashion phase, most of us, that is most of us, snapped out of it at some point, and we realized that we were trying to be someone else. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth in the mid-first century, he tells them over and over again that they are not acting like who they really are. They're not acting like Christians. As Christians following and trusting the same Savior, the Corinthians should have worked toward being united and sticking together. Instead, the Corinthian Christians divided over the most effective and eloquent teachers. As Christians being saved by the same gospel, by Jesus living and dying in their place, the Corinthian Christians should have prized that message and proclaimed that message and held on to it. Instead, they acted not like who they were. They loved the eloquent and seemingly wise messages of the world. So paragraph after paragraph, just in the short one and a half chapters we've read so far of 1 Corinthians, Paul is shaking them and saying, guys, snap out of it. Snap out of it. Stop going after all of these cultural values and accolades around you. And Paul reminds them of what truly matters, of how God truly saves us. And in the passage in front of us today, Paul talks more about wisdom. He's already mentioned it in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, of how the world looks at the cross as foolishness. But what the world looks, as foolish, looks at as foolishness is actually God's wise plan to save sinners against him. 
So here in chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, Paul expands on this topic of wisdom. Now, he just wrapped up discussing that he doesn't attempt to be impressively wise according to worldly standards. They could see that when he first came to them, when they first met him. He didn't try to be, you know, really a wise guy, not like a smart aleck, but just really wise and impressive. And he reminds them that God still worked in their hearts despite this. God still worked in their hearts to believe in Jesus, even though Paul wasn't that impressive. So here in verses 6 to 16, he tells the Corinthians that God has given them what they need in order to see the cross of Jesus Christ as true wisdom. God has given them what they need to see the cross of Jesus Christ as true wisdom. So if you're not looking at, that, uh, at this passage, turn with me to, second, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. It's printed in your bulletin. You can also find it in your copy of God's Word. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. Main point of our passage, the Holy Spirit captures and captivates us with the gospel. But, but, when the church becomes disenchanted with the gospel, it will lose its discernment. It will leave the cross behind, and it will begin to run after the values and trappings of the world. The repeated lesson of 1 Corinthians is that just because God saved the church from the world doesn't mean that the church still can't act like the world. So we have three contrasts in our passage this morning. Contrast one is God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. Two, God's spirit, not the world's spirit. Three, spiritual people, not natural people. We'll start with the first contrast of this passage. God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. We see this in verses six to nine. Notice how Paul starts here. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So this very first word he uses, that word yet, beginning with that word, tells us that Paul is clarifying something. 
he's clarifying what he just said in the previous paragraph. Now, he just said in the previous paragraph that he doesn't attempt to speak in the wise words of the day. He simply attempts to be faithful to present the gospel message accurately. But now he clarifies. Sure, the message he proclaimed, that is, Jesus Christ crucified, is a foolish message to the world's standards, but not by God's standards. That's what he's clarifying. He proclaims God's wisdom, not the world's. And he proclaims this message, he says, to those who are the mature. That's a curious word choice here, isn't it? The mature. Now, when we read this letter, we especially read this section of this letter, we find that Paul uses terms he normally doesn't use in his other letters or even in 1 Corinthians. So what Paul's likely doing is he's taking the terms that the Corinthians like to use and he uses them himself and he redefines them properly. So we can imagine him doing, with, doing that with this word, mature. We can imagine the Corinthians liking, liking to call themselves mature. And Paul comes back and says, here's who, here's who are really mature. Those who are mature are those who cherish the message of the cross over and against the messages of the world. Those are the ones who are mature. So the mature here, in other words, are, are simply true Christians. Now, in other places in the New Testament, mature can refer to those who have grown spiritually. But keeping it just here in context, the mature are simply those who embrace the cross. That's who Paul imparts this wisdom of Jesus Christ crucified to. Now, as we'll see next week, Paul will call the Corinthians infants, not mature, because they had left the cross behind. So this is how Paul starts. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. The rest of verses 6 to 9, Paul explains what the wisdom he imparts is. So what is this wisdom? Like a lot of good explanations, he starts with what the wisdom is not. What the wisdom is not. So you continue in verse 6. It is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Paul's already talked about this a lot. We can look back to chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, where he says, even the best that the world has to offer did not come up with this message of Jesus Christ crucified. Not only did the best that the world has to offer not come up with this message, they oppose this message. So this is the wisdom he does not proclaim. And he adds another reason he doesn't proclaim this kind of wisdom. Notice here again in verse 6, it's because the wisdom of the rulers of the age are doomed to pass away. Do you see that there? They're doomed to pass away. I know it's, it's a little eerie, isn't it? But Paul's just being realistic. The best that the world has to offer has no lasting value. I remember that the late Ravi Zacharias used to say that every person has a worldview that offers answers to four basic questions. The questions of origin, that is, where did this all come from? Of meaning, why are we here? Of morality, what is true and right and what is wrong? Of destiny, that is, where are we going? Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And Zacharias so well contended that no religion or system of the world has come up with the same or as a satisfactory of answers as Christianity. Now, I like to take examples of, you know, what the world has to offer 
uh, I often take examples from sitcoms. Uh, I find myself doing that. I think sitcoms often, they, more than dramas, more than anything else, sitcoms seek to depict just kind of normal, ordinary life. Now, one episode of a show that Kate and I have come to enjoy, um, in this episode, the main character, he grapples with his mortality for the first time in his life. I mean, it's truly, seriously, that, that he is going to die, no matter what he does. Now, this character, he's very healthy, he's a specimen, he's got six-pack abs, but then he finds out somehow he has high cholesterol, and he freaks out. He's distraught, and he's resentful. Now, another character on that show who plays a, a psychology teacher, he tells him that this character reacted this way because he worshipped himself. And the God that he worshipped proved that he couldn't save him. I was like, whoa, that's pretty deep for a sitcom. It's good. But then, classically, they, they kind of brush past it. And the episode resolves uh, with kind of the final lesson being that the shortness of life is what makes life sweet and meaningful. And you know, that sounds good on the surface, but just when we think hard about it, it's not quite satisfactory. I mean, what about all of the wrong in the world? What about all of the wrong that, that I have done? What about guilt? I mean, and what about just the fact that the question that I think that aches each one of us, is this really it? The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has stamped eternity on each one of our hearts. I think that shortness of life piece just fails to answer those questions. But I digress. And back to the point that Paul is trying to make is the wisdom he does not proclaim. The wisdom he does not proclaim is the wisdom that comes from the world even what the, the world has to offer, the best that the world has to offer. So that's what he doesn't proclaim, but what does he proclaim? What is this wisdom? You look at verse 7, we could, three, we could see three components of the wisdom that Paul imparts to the mature. Three components. The first one, he says, you look at verse 7, it is a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And this kind of sounds like an elitist spirituality, like only the insiders really know what's going on. But remember, he's talking to everyone who embraces the cross. He's talking to all Christians, what all Christians know. A secret and hidden wisdom of God. The phrase literally says, we impart wisdom in a mystery. That word mystery is a, a term that the New Testament uses a lot. It refers to something that's been hidden but is now revealed. This describes the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, it's worth explaining some because there's a tension here. If the message of the cross is a mystery, we have to resolve some things. Because if you know your New Testament, if you know the Bible, you know that the New Testament claims that the Old Testament just so clearly predicted Jesus and the cross. But then how can we say that the cross is a mystery, that it was hidden? that it wasn't revealed only until recently. That's kind of a tension there. Well, just, just think of Paul's life, if you know the Apostle Paul's life. Before Paul became a Christian, he passionately believed the Old Testament scriptures. He passionately believed that these scriptures were true, but that belief did not lead him to embrace the message of a crucified Messiah. 
it was only until, it was only after he met the resurrected Jesus that he began to read the Old Testament with new eyes. So you see, the Old Testament points to Jesus, but it points to Jesus in veiled terms, in types and in shadows. So for instance, the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus prepares the way for the final supreme sacrifice of Christ. Or another example, the office of the high priest prepares the way for the supreme high priest that would intercede between God and God's people. Now, amazingly enough, theologian Don Carson says, God provided revelation in the Old Testament that was clear enough for people to understand that it pointed to Jesus after the events of his life occurred, but veiled enough that those who rejected this message would misinterpret the Old Testament and put it together in wrong ways. So the message that Paul and other Christians proclaimed is the hidden and secret wisdom of God. That's the first aspect of it. Continue in verse 7. What is the wisdom that Paul proclaims? Secondly, it is the wisdom God decreed before the ages began. Again, this is a clarifying point. You see, if you think about it, if this message of the cross has now just been revealed, well, is this some kind of new plan from God? Paul says no. It has always been God's plan. It was decreed before the ages began. This is not God's plan B. This is not God's backup. He did not try something, screw up, and then, all right, I'll just do this. This is, amazingly enough, always been the plan. Peter makes the same uh, clarification in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He says, Jesus Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Third aspect, what is this wisdom that Paul imparts to the mature? He says, one, it is a hidden and secret wisdom of God. Two, that it is a wisdom that God decreed before the ages. Three, it is a wisdom that is for our glory. You see, that if you know glory, glory is a, it's a very, another Bible-y type word. It can mean, and the Bible uses it in different ways. Glory can mean beauty or majesty. It can mean who deserves the honor or credit. Here, it refers to where Christians are going, where Christians are headed. So it's like Romans 8, verse 18, which says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So let's just wrap up what Paul is saying in these verses, verses 6 to 9. He wraps up the contrast between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom by stating again that the world did not understand God's wise plan of the cross. More than not understanding it, he says the world is against it. They crucified the Lord of glory, he says in verse 8. One commentator says this, the, ru- uh, the rulers of authorities of Rome and Israel, that is the best government and the highest religion of the world at the time, conspired to put Jesus on the cross. Now Paul supports his point that no earthly source imagined God's plan to save and redeem his people by paraphrasing Isaiah 64, verse 3, where he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So this is the wisdom Paul imparts to the mature. God's wise and secret wisdom that he planned from ages past, but is now just revealed. This wisdom of Jesus Christ crucified, not the world's wisdom. Now here, 
It's important to see, and like in any passage of Scripture, what the passage says. But why is the passage there? Each, there's no, there are no wasted words in the Bible. Each word is purposeful. And we could say that here, too. So we just ask, like we would any other week, why is this here? Why was this here for the Corinthians? Why did Paul need to say this? Well, think of who the Corinthians were and what they were doing. These were Christians who went after the wisdom of the rulers of the age. These were Christians who loved the stylish philosophy that was all flash and no substance. And these were Christians who wanted the church to become like it. And so the Apostle Paul's reminding them of real and true wisdom. And we could just hear Paul telling them the tragedy, the tragedy of going after the world's wisdom. He tells them, we could put it in our own words. He says, guys, why are you pledging allegiance to the pundits who have no understanding of the cross? I mean, look at the eternal forgiveness and freedom God has given us sinners through the death of his son, and you're going to trade that away for the cross-denying fads that are here today and gone tomorrow. You're going to trade away for that. For us Christians in 2020, Northeast Ohio, we run the same risk of growing dull to the gospel and more infatuated with the world's wisdom. Growing dull to this message of Jesus Christ crucified and more infatuated with the world's wisdom. Guys, this happened to the Corinthian Christians who didn't have access to unlimited information in their pockets. This happened to the Corinthian Christians who didn't have unlimited entertainment on demand. This happened to the Corinthian Christians who didn't have a breaking news headline every 30 seconds. As Neil Postman so um, prophesied and commented on our age all the way back in the 80s, he said that the West is not George Orwell's 1984, where we have to ban books. No, the West is Adolf Huxley's Brave New World, where we don't even have to ban books. We're so consumed with amusement and entertainment that no one's even interested in books anymore. So in our age that is drowning in information, drowning in outrage, drowning in posturing, have you pivoted from running toward God's wisdom to now running toward the world's? Now what the Corinthians became, what these Corinthian Christians became, it reminds me of a warning from a pastor I know. He said this. He said, Satan is far more likely to dull your affections over a decade than to destroy your soul in a day. Dull your affections over a decade than destroy your soul in a day. One of you think back to the last 10 years of your life and can testify to the truth of that statement. Whether you're a teenager whether you're a 20-something, whether you're a retiree. Y'all, we need to be careful of immersing ourselves so deeply and without discernment and all the noise and news and entertainment that it begins to affect the cravings of our heart. That's what happens to the Corinthians. Instead, what we need to do is what Paul says here. 
and cherish and embrace the cross of Jesus Christ as God's wisdom to save sinners. You might ask, what does that look like? How do you know when you have done this? Embrace the cross as God's wisdom. Well, friends, it's when we begin to look at the cross of Christ and say that it should have been me. And say that my sin sent him there. And say that I stood among the mockers, that he went there in my place. And it's when we begin to say and see the cross as displaying God's unsurpassing love. His love even to sinners and enemies against him. That even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We embrace the cross as God's wisdom. When we look at the cross, and don't just see the logic of it and how it works and how it fits together. It's when we look at the cross and are gripped by it. And it produces in us what verse 9 says. Love for God. So friends, watch out for the dulling effects that the world has on our hearts and keep yourself close to the love and wisdom of God displayed on the cross. So, if it is impossible for the world to imagine what God has prepared for us, so verse 9 of this passage, if it is impossible for us to know on our own the cross is God's wisdom, so verse 8 of this passage, then how have we come to grasp the cross as God's wisdom? How has this happened? Well, because as Paul continues, God has given us the Holy Spirit, not the world spirit. This is the second contrast of this section. It runs from verse 10 to verse 13. Let's read these verses again. I want you to see how Paul builds. He builds to how we understand the cross as God's wisdom in verse 12. Verses 10 to 13, we'll read these again. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by, taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You may have heard this story. I've referenced it several times in sermons of the blind men and the elephants. Familiar with that story. Uh, it goes something like this. Uh, several blind men enter a room where an elephant is, and they're trying to figure out what it is. They don't know that it's an elephant. So one blind man, you know, kind of feels around. It's and he touches the trunk of the elephant. And he concludes that the elephant is like a snake. Another blind man feels around, and he touches the elephant's tusk. And concludes the elephant is like a spear. Another goes around and to the rear of the elephant and grabs its tail. It says the elephant is like a rope, and we could keep going. Now they all argued, they came together and argued about what the elephant actually is. And then the wise teacher came into the room and told them that the elephant was a big animal. And to know the truth about it, they must put all of their information together. Now, many have poked holes in this parable. One of the holes is that this parable claims that the entire truth about the elephant is unavailable. But then this wise teacher comes in and sees the whole thing. Tim Keller says this in his book, Reason for God. He says, 
How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claim that none of the religions have? But the parable, though, besides holes in it, it does touch on what we need if we are to know God. If we are to know God, God must speak. God must speak. He must reveal himself to us. And, And the claim of the Bible is that God has revealed himself to us, and he has done so supremely in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, our problem is worse than blindness, as Paul says here. It's worse than we're just blind. We not only need God to speak, we need God to make us understand. We won't listen to the word of the cross on our own. We're too self-centered. I mean, you think about it. Think about the Bible and reading the gospel accounts. How else would you explain, for example, why the people who saw with their eyes Jesus die on the cross and then saw with their eyes him, his empty tomb, how else would you explain that they still refuse Christ other than God has to do a work in their heart? So to know God, God must reveal himself to us. To have peace with God, God must save us. For us to accept God, God must change us. This is what God does through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes the message of the cross comprehensible and beautiful to our blind, sinful, and lost hearts. We notice in these verses, Paul uses a human analogy. He uses a human analogy to explain that only the Holy Spirit can do this. You see, no matter how well you know a person, and no matter how much we want to, we don't know what another person is thinking. We can't know another person's thoughts entirely. You know, one of the questions that that Kate and I ask each other the most is just the simple question, what are you thinking? We can't know each other's thoughts. And so when Paul asked in verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, he's saying that only that person knows his or her own thoughts. The spirit of that person here refers to that interior of a person. So just put this together. If we can't know each other's thoughts, then how much less can we know God's thoughts? If we are going to know and understand God, Paul says, then we are going to have to receive the Spirit of God. And in verse 12, Paul says that's exactly what has happened. The Corinthian Christians received the Spirit of God. They no longer have the Spirit of the world that leads them to conclude that the cross of Christ is foolishness. They have the Holy Spirit, which leads them to conclude that the cross of Christ is God's wisdom. That's what makes the difference. And he continues in verse 13 by saying, as the Spirit causes us to understand the cross, the Spirit also causes us to preach and teach the cross in appropriate ways. So this phrase in verse 13, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, it's a tough phrase to translate from the Greek. What's clear, though, in verse 13, just look at the the verses around it. Paul's talking about the way he teaches. His point is the same point he made in the previous paragraph. The way he teaches aligns with what he teaches. 
He teaches in a way that does not distract from his message, that does not distract from the message of the cross. He's not aiming to put on a show. He's aiming to proclaim the cross clearly, passionately, compellingly, and just let the Spirit do his work. So, y'all, this is a lot of information. So, catch our breath for a second. Let's review this passage so far. The Corinthians fell out of love with the gospel, and they became infatuated with the world's wisdom. This so called wisdom was fading, Paul says. But the cross, God's wisdom, is how God saved them and how God bought them an eternal inheritance. And we don't understand the cross as God's wisdom, which is why God has to give us his spirit so that we can understand what he's freely given to us in Christ. That's the summary of what we've been through so far. And we can reflect on this point in a couple ways. Just reflect for a second. First, we have to say, this is another one of the Bible's reminders not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Do not think of yourselves more highly than we ought. Guys, think of our current moment. Right now, current moment. People are more anxious. People are more angry. People are more restless than ever before. Why? I mean, there are a lot of crazy events going on. But really, can, can we say that crazy events have never happened before? This moment feels different. One reason, one of many reasons, is that the avalanche and availability of information creates an impression in us that we can know everything. And this information is packaged in a way that plays on our emotions of fear, outrage, and self-righteousness. And this information that comes in avalanches and is always available makes us to expect that we know every event happening across the entire world and we can carry it all and we can explain it all and that we are always right. We can't do that. And so here, as another good reminder that Paul tells us of our blindness, of our natural selves, of our obtuseness, and of our pride. But this should lead us to a second reflection on verses 10 to 13. Y'all, see the amazing grace of God. Just layer after layer, infinitely deep. See the lengths that God went to, the depths to which he stooped. You know, God did not stop at sending his beloved son. Jesus did not just voluntarily give his life on the cross while we were still enemies against him. Those things are amazing in themselves. But we might imagine God saying, accomplishing those things and say, okay, guys, look at all this that I did. Now you're on your own. If that's what happened, it would have been for nothing. If that's what happened, if God just stopped there, we would have continued walking away from him, pursuing our own self-salvation actions and projects. But God did not stop there. His grace did not stop there. He also sent his spirit to enable us to understand and grasp what he has done. Truly, God is rich in mercy, rich in mercy. So we say, see this today again and rest and rejoice. See this today and take hold of it, perhaps for the first time, to turn away from living to yourself 
and turn to trust in Christ in your place? One last contrast. We'll introduce it saying this. There are 13 Land Before Time movies. There are now nine Fast and the Furious films. At some point, repetition becomes redundant. In verses 14 to 16, Paul appears to make the same point that he does in verses 6 to 13. But like you and I both know, repetition is often necessary in order to summarize and ensure that we get the point. So Paul just finished explaining what, that we understand the cross is God's wisdom because God gave us the Spirit. Now, while this has been implied already, Paul states clearly now in verse 14 that on our own, we do not receive the cross as God's wisdom. On our own, we receive it as foolishness. John Calvin famously said that our natural selves receive the word of God as much as a donkey takes in a concert. Just like Paul said in chapter 1, verse 18, the message of a crucified Messiah does not mesh very well with the self-reliant bent of our human hearts. You see, the cross tells us that we are guilty. The cross tells us that we cannot save ourselves. The cross tells us that we are saved through a display of human weakness, not human strength. And Paul, in verse 14, he keeps going. He has very strong words about the inability of our natural selves. Notice how this verse closes. He says that on our own, we are not able to understand, that is, the things of the Spirit of God. Not able. We I mean, think about it like this. How do you appreciate and truly grasp the hues of a rainbow if you are colorblind? How do you appreciate and truly grasp the sweetness of honey if you don't have any taste buds? How do you appreciate and truly grasp the sound of orchestra, of the orchestra, if you can't hear? And so what he, Paul says here is the point is that on our own, we do not have what is necessary to understand and grasp the way of the cross. We need the Holy Spirit. But I think this is worth clarifying. It's worth explaining if we can't do this, if we are unable to do this, then how can we be blamed for something we can't do? I mean, you wouldn't tell a third grader to sit down and do his calculus homework and then be upset with him when he can't do it. Now, it's worth reminding, therefore, that we are not neutral in this. I'll refer again to theologian Don Carson where he says, it's not that God makes us unable to understand him and then toys with us for his own amusement. Rather, God has made us for himself, but we, have ran, we run from him. The heart of our lostness is our profound self-focus. We do not want to know him if knowing him is on his terms. We are happy to have a God we can more or less manipulate. We certainly cannot fathom a powerful creator who takes the place of an odious criminal in order to save us from the judgment we deserve. 
The only way we can fathom it and grasp and embrace such things are if we are not our natural selves, but if we are spiritual, which is what Paul says in verse 15. The spiritual person of verse 15 is simply the person who has the Holy Spirit and now grasps the cross as God's wisdom. So Paul says the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, we have to keep all things in that verse in context. It refers to what Paul's been talking about. Paul's not saying that all Christians now have the ability to know quantum physics and molecular biology. He's comparing the Christian's experience to the non-Christian's experience. He's comparing the spiritual and the natural. Christians know what it's like to live without the Spirit. Christians know life without God. They've lived in both worlds. But those without the Spirit have not lived in both worlds. They cannot truly understand what the life of a Christian is. The transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit working and implying the gospel to our hearts is foreign to those who it hasn't happened to. So they might read the, note, the music notes on a page, but they haven't heard the music. Paul closes in verse 16 by stating again that our natural selves cannot bridge the gap between us and God. He does this by citing Isaiah 40. It's when exiled Israel could not comprehend God's heart and power to save them and restore them by his grace. But Christians can understand the mind of the Lord because Paul says we have the mind of Christ. It's keeping it in context is another way to say that we have the Holy Spirit. When Paul went to the city of Athens, you know, ancient Greece, capital of the empire, he proclaimed the message of Christ crucified to a city filled with the gods of Greek mythology. And some of the leading philosophers of the city questioned him, asking, what does this babbler wish to say? You know, Paul didn't just write down these words in 1 Corinthians. Paul lived these words. Paul witnessed this happen. Y'all, I've had, I've had friends who I have explained the gospel to time and again over the period of years, good, having good conversations, having honest back and forths. They're polite. They listen well, but they have not embraced the gospel. I've talked to individuals who attend church somewhat frequently, but who never discuss spiritual matters. I've kindly just gotten down to brass tacks with them, asking them, who they trust in before God. And I hear them stumble over their words. And after I explain how Jesus goes in our place and I ask if they believe it, and they say, yeah, yeah, I do. No warmth, no humility, no desire. It's a reminder, this entire section of 1 Corinthians and verses 14 to 16 in particular tell us that no matter how intelligently, no matter how compassionately we explain the gospel, people will not embrace it apart from the Holy Spirit. No matter how much a person knows, whether they have attended church for their entire lives or read the Bible cover to cover, knowledge is not the same as genuine faith. 
Becoming a Christian isn't simply about overcoming ignorance and learning new information. It's overcoming lostness. And the result is not just new information, but transformation of heart and life. So Paul tells the Corinthian Christians here, he says, guys, this transformation happened in you. This happened to you. You're not living like it. They responded to the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified. They embraced it as God's wisdom, but they've grown cold to it. Something else has enticed them. And tragically enough, what's enticed them is the perspective perspective of people who have never tasted the goodness and grace of Christ. Isn't that sad? Y'all, are we different? Are we really that different? in the media, in the entertainment, in the perspectives, and even the preaching we Christians run to consume. To use our analogy from the beginning of our time, the Corinthians started to dress in their old clothes again. These were clothes that represented their selfish, hollow, and divisive way of life. What Paul is just saying is, guys, you have new clothes, better ones. Ones that are blood-washed garments. The robe of Christ's perfect life. These clothes should represent your new way of living. Living by the Spirit who causes you to treasure your Savior and to walk like Him. Not in division, not in selfishness, not in pettiness, not in worldliness, but in unity. Self-sacrificial love, won for us and displayed for us at the cross of Jesus Christ, the message they believe, the message they proclaim, the message they should embrace. Let's pray. Lord God, we'll say it again. I don't think we can say it often enough that we are prone to wander. God, uh, at the risk of being crass, forgive us for being idiots at times. Seriously, we're, we're fools. We, how could we who have tasted the goodness and grace of Christ go after the things of the world that do not have that perspective? Teach us how to navigate this. Teach us how to love sinners and not sin. Teach us how to love the world and not its message. And teach us how to enjoy your gifts without being led astray. And Lord, keep us proclaiming your wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. And Holy Spirit, as we proclaim it and we pray ways that are appropriate and faithful, we pray that you accompany your word to help us understand, to change our hearts. And you do that perhaps for people who haven't experienced that yet. Out of your mercy, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.